This episode is sponsored by World History Encyclopedia, one of the top history websites on the internet. I love the fact they're not a wiki. Every article they publish is reviewed by the editorial team, not only for being accurate, but also for being interesting to read. The website is run as a non-profit organization, so you won't be bombarded by annoying ads and is completely free. It's a great site, and don't just take my word for it, they've been recommended by many academic institutions, including Oxford University. Go check them out at worldhistory.org, or follow the link in the episode description. The 1956 Hollywood version of the Rodgers and Hammerstein musical The King and I popularised King Monkut of Siam, who from a Western perspective was a hitherto obscure figure. In the musical, an English teacher, played by Deborah Kerr, drags the monarch of a seemingly insulated and somewhat backward country into the modern world. As is so often the case, the Hollywood version of history was far from the truth. Though Monkut did embrace science and technology, he wasn't the first Siamese ruler to do so. Some 200 years earlier, King Narai of Ayotia sought out cutting edge technology and formed alliances with powerful figures such as King Louis XIV of France. In this episode, I speak with Australian historian, Dr. Ian Hodges about Narai, his reign his legacy, and his eventual successor, the better-known King Monkut. Narai was born in 1632. His father had recently usurped the throne of Ayutthaya, a Siamese kingdom based in what today we call Thailand. Tradition holds that the child was born with a strange birth defect. He had four arms. The two additional appendages mysteriously vanished shortly after his birth. But to the onlookers, this bizarre occurrence tied him to the four-armed Hindu god Vishnu. Seeing it as a sign, his father, King Prasat Thong, named him Narai after Narayana, one of the many forms that Vishnu took. After King Prasat's death, the throne passed to Narai's brother Chai, but Narai supported a coup led by his uncle, which led to Chai's death and his uncle taking the throne. The alliance didn't last long, and later in 1656, the same year his father had died, Narai became king. In the following years, Narai forged a reputation as a western-leaning, forward-thinking monarch. He interacted with Portuguese Jesuit priests, established foreign embassies, and even welcomed a controversial Greek adventurer named Constantine Falcon into his court. How significant, though, was the infusion of foreign parties into Ayutthaya? It's a question I put to Australian historian Dr Ian Hodges. There's a perception that prior to Narai, the area we now call Thailand, was seen as a very remote, mysterious, insular part of the world almost unknown to foreigners. But is that accurate? From the 13th to the 15th centuries, the capital of, I guess, what was known as Siam was a place called Sukhothai. 
several hundred kilometres north of Ayutthaya. And it was one of those old sort of Southeast Asian kingdoms that was based on being at the centre of a vast rice growing area. And so agriculture and irrigation were key to kingdoms like this. That kingdom fell in about the 15th century and Ayutthaya became the centre of the Thai world from the 14th to the 18th centuries. And that's that was a kingdom based on trade with foreign powers. So it wasn't a kingdom dependent on agriculture in the way that Sukhothai was. It was a much more, I guess, worldly, outward-looking place, particularly by the 17th century. For the first few hundred years of Ayutthaya's existence, the kingdom had been at war almost the entire time, either with the Khmer in the east or the Burmese in the west. For example, I've seen that period referred to as a period of what they would call in Thai Wong Wong Jat Jat, which is war, war, um, kings, kings, dynasties, dynasties. It was all about keeping the, the Khmer and the Burmese at bay. And in the past, the Thais had sort of often been in the middle of this sort of conflict. And that went on well into the 19th century. But for the, by the 17th century was a period of relative peace. The kingdom was emerging from the first time it had been conquered by the Burmese. It had fallen to the Burmese and been under Burmese rule for decades before the Thais managed to liberate themselves. And so by the 17th century, it's a kingdom more or less at peace and it's a kingdom that's really opening up to the outside world because of trade. And so there are people from all over the place coming to visit Siam. In fact, in the early 17th century, a British visitor to the kingdom called Ayutthaya's grander city as London. And probably 100 years before that, estimates are that the city had a population of between 50 and 100,000 people. So 100 years later, in a time of peace and trade, you've got to figure that the population is even greater than that. So Ayuti is a cosmopolitan city that can rival big European cities in terms of its size and its grandeur. The trade that Ayutthaya carried on was with places such as China, India, Malaya, the Indonesian islands. And there was also a bit of European trade as well. And Europeans started to come to the kingdom in greater numbers. Before the 17th century, the Portuguese were the only Europeans that had come to Siam and conducted trade. But the royal court recognised the importance of having European trade for building up the kingdom, for building up the economy, and also to fund the sort of rebuilding that was needed after centuries of warfare. Europeans were encouraged to come and trade in Siam. It also was a time when manpower was not at a premium. Manpower was more readily available for the Siamese to rebuild the kingdom because they weren't sending so many men on military exhibitions. So you had people who were available to work and you needed the money to make all this happen. And that's where trade came in. By the 17th century, Ayutthaya was the centre of a powerful kingdom. Siam spread in the east, the eastern part of what's now Cambodia, to the Bay of Bengal in the west, to the northern areas of Chiang Mai, Chiang Rai up in northern Thailand today, and down to more or less where the Malay border is today. So it was a, a large and powerful kingdom, cosmopolitan place and outward looking kingdom. Siam was also a transshipment point for goods coming from Europe to China and Japan. Often they would stop in Ayutthaya, I guess, repackage things and send them on their way. I guess the important thing to know in the case of King Narai is that traditionally visitors to the kingdom, European visitors to the kingdom, had always bought gifts for the king. And these gifts were often the sort of things you'd expect, you know, cloths, spices, things that were maybe hard to get in Siam that were readily available elsewhere. 
when Narai became king, he was a very different sort of character to his predecessors, and he had different interests. When he was king, rather than accepting the gifts that, that people were willing to bring him, like the cloths, like the spices, he actually requested particular things from Europe, and these things were instruments of science. They were navigational equipment, telescopes, globes of the heavens, that sort of thing. And the two countries or the two powers in Europe that had the most contact with Siam during his reign were the, the French and the Dutch, both places where scientific advances were taking place, particularly in relation to studying and understanding the heavens. So this was the kind of stuff that Narai was interested in. And this is the kind of stuff that he was ordering and having sent as gifts to himself. You mentioned items such as telescopes and globes as being items that Narai sought out from Europe. I know that during his reign, one of the most powerful figures in his court was the royal astrologer. Was the astrologer's elevated status based on the fact that Narai had an interest in stargazing and the heavens? The royal astrologer existed in an elevated position regardless of who the king was, because astrology was so central to the running of the kingdom, every important event from funerals to when to send a military exhibition to when to hold particular ceremonies, everything of importance to the kingdom had to be calculated by the astrologers and held at the most auspicious moment. And so it was essential that the chief court astrologer and other court astrologers were able to understand and calculate the movements of heavenly bodies. So the chief royal astrologer was always important. It just so happened in Narai's time that the Prahoratipidi is the title given to the chief royal astrologer. We don't know the man's name, only that that was his title, and that was the title for every chief royal astrologer. But this was a man who grew up in a province called Pichit, about 300 kilometers north of Bangkok in Ayutthaya. He was a scholarly and a learned man, and he came to Ayutthaya to finish his education. There, he became Prince Narai's main teacher. He was one of several. A young prince in those days was taught literature, but he was also taught science. This particular chief royal astrologer was not only a man of science, he was a man of letters. He was a literary fellow. And I gather that he and Narai got along very well. Narai respected him enormously. And when Narai became king, this particular chief royal astrologer enjoyed the king's patronage, along with a number of other literary figures in Siam at the time. And Narai would run literary competitions in the palace. He would give food and lodgings to people like the Prahoratipidi and other literary figures. He loved poetry, he loved literature, and he was credited with being one of three authors of a famous classical Thai poem of the era. So there's that side of Narai, a man of letters, a man of literature, a man of learning, but he was also fascinated by science and the study of the heavens. The French and the Dutch were really beginning, I think, for the first time, perhaps to grasp and understand the nature of the cosmos. And this was in part due to the invention of the telescope and a greater understanding of the movement of heavenly bodies. And so Narai was fascinated by this. He was fascinated by King Louis XIV. And both countries sent embassies to each other. The first ties to appear in Europe were an embassy to the Dutch in about 1608, but Narai sent embassies to France as well. And the embassies coming back the other way and the gifts coming back the other way presented to him specifically by King Louis XV were globes of the heavens and earth, telescopes, the sort of things I've mentioned. 
And Narai pulled his interests together to create, in effect, a new kind of historical writing in the kingdom. And it was all based on the records of the court astrologers, which would have been compiled by this Prahoratipity, the chief royal astrologer. So Narai's interest in literature, his interest in science combined to bring about a new way of representing time's passage in historical writing in Siam. So on a practical level, how did these new discoveries and sciences manifest through the recording of history? And how did that contrast with the traditional methods and views of how history is collated? And so Narai took these interests and he ordered the chief royal astrologer to write a history of the kingdom based on the records that were available to him. And these were known as the Jotmay Headhorn, which are the records of the court astrologer. They had existed for centuries and were always an important part of the kingdom. From a Western point of view, they're interesting and strange documents. They're not histories, but every single entry in them is preceded by an exact lunar date. For example, an entry might say on the the fourth day of the waxing moon in the fifth month of the year of the dragon, which will, if you're able to calculate it, tell you the exact day that this was in the Western calendar, and sometimes also the exact time. And then it will mention an event, you know, it might be, oh, the two suns were seen in the sky, which is an atmospheric phenomena that will happen, and obviously something that an astrologer would note and write down. But the next entry in these records might not be then for the next five years, and it'll be completely unrelated to the entry that went before it and completely unrelated to the entry that comes after it. And the only thing that makes them important is the moment at which they happened from an astrological point of view. Now, Narai was familiar with these records and the Prahoratipity, the chief royal astrologer, would be writing these records. And so it's not that surprising that he asked this man who he knew to be a man of letters, who he knew to be a man of science, to write this history and introduce this new way of measuring time's passage. And this history became known as the Luang Prasert Chronicle of Ayutthaya because it was found in the home of someone called Luang Prasert many centuries later. And it's regarded as the first dynastic history of Siam. And that is obviously a history centred around the reigns of kings, and it is the history of a kingdom. Up until that point, histories in Siam were generally written from the Buddhist point of view, and they're known as Dhamnan, and they are fantastic tales of the supernatural. They all relate to the Buddha. They begin with the birth of the Buddha, and they cover aeons of time, unimaginable passages of time for us, and they involve such things as prophecy. So you will have in some of these chronicles the Buddha travelling through time and space to a place in what is now Thailand where he prophesies that his religion would take hold. And then they move through time again to the time when the religion has taken hold, and they describe the entire history of that region purely from a Buddhist point of view. Everything important that happens in these histories has a religious framework about it. Kings and dynasties are mentioned, but there are no dates attached to these histories at all. They're very difficult to use as a historical source because of this, because there are no dates. From a Western point of view, it's almost impossible. That was fine, and these histories lasted for centuries, and they were written in northern kingdoms like Chiang Mai, like Sukhothai, and places that were obviously very strongly Buddhist, as was Ayutthaya. But by the time of Narai's reign, the world was changing. And the Buddhist conception of, of history was, in Narai's eyes, no longer sufficient for relating the history of what was now a, 
a big outward-looking kingdom with ties to the rest of the world. He wasn't the first to have a dynastic history written. What is significant about Narai is that he was the first to insist that dates be included in the history. So a couple of decades before, there were earlier histories that dealt with the dynasties, but they never mentioned dates. Time was mentioned in the regnal lengths of kings. King Narai, based on his interest in Western scientific instruments, Western scientific developments, and his interest in indigenous Thai literature, and his knowledge of the chief royal astrologer, his respect for this man and the fact that he'd known him for a long time, all combined to get him to make the astrologer the historian. And those two roles are often combined in various places around the world over the centuries, but probably not as explicitly. And so the first dynastic history, the Luang Prasert Chronicle of Ayutthaya, is in fact nothing more than an astrologer's record. And if you read it, you'll see every entry is again preceded by the lunar date and sometimes the time on which the events took place. And there's an entry, maybe in slightly more detail than a regular astrologer's record, but it doesn't flow as a narrative history would in the way that we understand it. But over time, this genre of history, which was known as the, the Pong Sawadam, the, the Royal Chronicles, came to take on, I guess, more of a, a Western sensibility in the way history was written, in the way that time's passage was measured. So everything still had a lunar date attached to it, but a single entry might cover 10 years. Whereas in the past, a single entry would cover one incident, one moment in time, and that was it. Whereas the histories now went on to describe, say, a war against Burma in detail before maybe then swinging back to describe concurrent events from a Thai point of view. In terms of his embrace of certain aspects of Western science and technology and culture, was Narai a sort of Thai version of Peter the Great who latched on to French culture and kind of imposed it on Russia? Or was he simply trying to utilise these new ideas that he'd gathered in terms of science and history and so forth to celebrate the culture they already had in Thailand rather than trying to co-opt something from somewhere else? I think you'd have to go with the latter. He was fascinated by King Louis XIV and he was fascinated by Europe. And you mentioned earlier Constance Falcon, the Greek. He'd come to Siam with some Persians. Persians were a, a big presence in Ayutthaya throughout the 17th century. And Falcon managed to rise to an extremely high position in the royal court and had a degree of influence over Narai. But I wouldn't even go as far as saying that Narai was sort of interested in Western forms of history and wanted to replicate that. That's not what he was doing. His interest in telescopes and the science of studying the heavens was such that he had two observatories built, one in Ayutthaya and one in Lopburi, where he spent half of every year just north of Ayutthaya. And he had these observatories built for French Jesuit astronomers to carry out observations. And he was there for some important observations. And in fact, in what may be a unique case, some of these people were allowed to stand in the presence of King Narai to adjust the telescopes that he would be looking through. Normally, no one, no one, would stand in the presence of the king. Everybody was on their, their knees and their elbows prostrate before him. So he was willing to break with certain traditions if it furthered his interest in this equipment. But again, having said all that, there's no evidence that Narai's personal interest in Western science and Western navigation, Western astronomy had any influence in the kingdom beyond 
the influence it had on the writing of the history. Narai's understanding of this may not have been sufficient to enable him to really grasp the concepts behind it. I think there was a prestige value attached to having these things for Narai. It was an indication of his outward-looking nature and his interest in the wider world, but it didn't translate necessarily into him understanding how this all worked or what it meant. But the way that it did impact upon him was influencing his understanding of time's passage and how he could use that in writing, I guess, a more accessible history of the kingdom that he was the ruler of, and a kingdom which had three or 400 years of history behind it at this point. He wasn't trying to change the way that Thai astrology worked. The two things had existed for a long time, side by side, Thai astrology and historical writing. They just never come together. That was the only way they came together. It didn't influence the way that court astrologers made their calculations. It just didn't go beyond Narai, essentially, except in the writing of history. It was, I guess you could say, a matter of prestige, a matter of curiosity, and a way of maintaining his contact with King Louis XIV, a way of appearing cosmopolitan and worldly to European visitors. I don't think Narai's having this equipment translated into any greater understanding or any change in the Thai worldview in the 17th century, that all came about with a remarkably similar king 200 years later, a king called Mongkut. He was probably the last and only the second king after Narai to use the records of the court astrologers in historical writing, and he did it for a different purpose to Narai. The records of the court astrologers in historical writing were kept generally very separate in Siam. When Narai died, there's, again, this Hollywood version that we've seen in films like The King and I, that Thailand suddenly became this really isolated, insular country. And from that, you might get the impression that everything that Narai had introduced was washed away. Is that the case? Was there just this sort of vacuum of science and Western ideals until Monka came along? Well, not entirely. Pong Sawadan history, which was what this Luang Prasert Chronicle was the first example of, continued through the remaining years of Ayutthaya's existence and into the early years of the Bangkok kingdom. Both of these kings, Mongkut and Narai, were wary of Europeans as well as being interested in them and wanting to know them. They were wary of them, and Mongkut in particular, because of the threat of colonialism. And there's a, a view that was abroad for a long time that Mongkut had very cleverly played the French and the British off against each other to retain his own kingdom's independence from both. It's more likely that the British in Burma and the French in Indochina recognised Siam as a useful buffer between their two spheres of influence and let it remain free rather than through any genius of King Mongkut. So his influence carried on in terms of the recording of history. But was there any kind of backlash against these foreign influences in the kingdom when Narai died? There was a coup. Narai became ill in 1688. And there was a coup that year. The Greek Constance Falcon was executed in the most horrible manner. They imprisoned him. They flayed the soles of his feet. They put some sort of device on his head that could screw into the temple. And they left him like that for a while. And then they killed him at a temple. The kingdom closed to the West for the next 200 years. There was no diplomatic contact, no official diplomatic contact between Siam and the West 
then until the 19th century. And so King Mongkut, obviously 200 years later, he's a different man and a different character in many ways, but in other ways, quite a similar character to Narai. He ruled after the second fall of Ayutthaya to the Burmese. And so both of these kings ruled at a time when, although it was beyond living memory, threats to the the kingdom's existence were still very much in the consciousness of of Ayutthaya's ruling elite. Ayutthaya was no longer the capital of the kingdom by the time of Mongkut's reign. They had moved to, to Bangkok, a more, I guess, easily defended position closer to the mouth of the Jalpiar River. Mongkut had been a monk for 27 years while he was a prince, and he had a keen intelligence and he had learned a great deal about Buddhism, of course, being decades in the monastery. But he was also fascinated by the heavens and the night sky and the movement of the planets. But Mongkut was a very gifted calculator of the movement of the heavens, so much so that he was probably reputed to be better than his own astrologers and the chief royal astrologer of his era. And this was a source of annoyance and frustration to him because of what I said earlier. It still remained the case that any significant event in the kingdom had to be held at an astrologically auspicious time. And if your astrologers and your chief royal astrologer are tardy or not accurate in their calculations, the flow-on effects of this could be disastrous for the kingdom. And Mongkut believed and understood that. But he was better at it, and he actually lost his life in proving it. He took his astrologers to a place south of Bangkok called Hua Gor, where there was an eclipse visible. Mongkut had calculated the duration, the path, and the timing of the eclipse to the detail, to the second, and his astrologers hadn't. And so he chastised them, and he proved that he was better at it. But he and his son both caught malaria while they were in this place, and his son Chula Longhorn survived and went on to become king, and Mongkut died as a result of the illness. So he was vindicated, proving that to them in the end killed him. But you yeah. have to understand also that by the time that Mongkut was ruling Siam, Western science was more common, better understood, and it was actually used in the kingdom. So as whereas Narai had kept this personal collection, Western scientific equipment in the palace, in the Siam of Mongkut's time, Siam had steam engines, it had printing presses, it had the tools of Western science and Western technology that were actually being used in a practical way in the kingdom. Mongkut was interested in literature and science in a similar way that Narai was, and his reign also coincided with a change in the way that history in the kingdom was written, so that the Pong Sawadan form that had been pioneered by Narai's chief royal astrologer started to give way to history based on more Western forms because, again, they had access now to this sort of material in the kingdom. There were a lot of Westerners there, and Thais could see how history was written elsewhere. They continued to use the form of dating that was in the Pong Sawadan. What Mongkut did that made it interesting was that he took one of the famous records of the court astrologers from antiquity and added his own entries to the beginning. And I believe he did this because he understood that because of the way they used dates, there was a certain veracity to these records that didn't attach to other records. And so what he did was add a, a series of entries to the beginning of a famous history using the lunar dates and linking his dynasty with the dynasties of antiquity, the famous Thai dynasties of Sukhothai and earlier, that gave him, I guess, a kind of legitimacy and a link 
with these kingdoms in antiquity. And he did it in a way that gave it dates and gave it times and made it look like it was accurate, serious history, when in fact it was backdating history and adding history in the form of an astrologer's record to legitimise his own reign. When you talked about how history was previously recorded with uh, Buddha being the central figure in terms of every kind of event, with both Narai and Monkut, their view of history being more Western style, does that suggest there was a conflict for them with Buddhism and that perhaps in some respects they were breaking from the traditional Buddhist view of the world and taking on not necessarily a Christian but a Western perspective as opposed to continuing the tradition of their kingdoms? It couldn't be construed as either Narai or Mongkut breaking with Buddhism. They understood probably Mongkut more than Narai, but they understood that on the spiritual plane, Buddhism offered the answers that the Thai people were looking for. And again, Mongkut in particular also understood that in terms of explaining the material world and the way things worked, Western science had the answers. Buddhism did not. But it never, ever translated into either of these kings renouncing or questioning the tenets of the religion that they'd grown up in. Anna Lean Owens, who taught Monkers 39 wives and 80 plus children, but whose biography seemed to kind of exaggerate her importance in the court of Monkert, has obviously propelled him through the musical based on her stories to a higher status in Western terms. But within Thailand, is Monkert regarded as a major historical figure? in the way that we from the West, due to her stories and the Hollywood movie, view him to be. Perhaps one of the most famous of all Thai kings, particularly in Thailand, he's he's someone that Thai people still look back to with enormous reverence. And whatever the facts of the matter are, he is credited with saving the kingdom from becoming a colony. When he was king, science had more practical application than it did when Narai was king, Western science did. For example, Monkut's brother repaired clocks for fun. Monkut had a collection of astronomical instruments and globes of the heavens that one Westerner who visited said would not have been out of place in the opulent study of a, a serious European philosopher, a wealthy you know, European. He had an enormous amount of equipment. And it was also extremely important for kings in that part of the world to demonstrate the harmony of their rule with the cosmos. One way of doing this was to insist that vassal states adopted your kingdom's calendar. So keeping people on the the same page, I guess, with time was really important. And one way that Monkut did this was to have a clock tower built in the palace grounds. And the clock tower had four faces, one in each direction. It could be seen from inside the palace and outside the palace. And it was a sort of symbol of Monkut's understanding of modernity and a symbol of how importantly he regarded time and temporal measurement, which, as I said, in the end, proving that led directly to it to his death. By the 19th century, science was something that was more widely, or Western science was something that was more widely understood. And because it was more widely understood, it was more able to be used practically in the day-to-day life of the kingdom. Whereas in the rise time, that simply wasn't the case. It was, it was far too early in the piece 
for this scientific knowledge to really take hold in what had been for millennia a Buddhist kingdom, the whole entirely different understanding of the world.